Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. On this episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast, we'll be discussing the important topics of child welfare and maltreatment, including experiences with systems here in Pennsylvania with broader and more universal implications beyond. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Knoll and Brian Bornman. Jenny serves as professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies and the director of the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network at Penn State University. She also serves as the principal investigator or PI of the P50 Capstone Center for Healthy Children of the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, NICHD, also housed at Penn State. Brian serves as the executive director of the Pennsylvania Children and Youth Administrators Association. I'd love to start off with some introductions on your backgrounds. Jenny, would you like to start us off? Yeah, so I'm a developmental psychologist by training. I'm really a methodologist and a scientist. I'm not a practitioner, so I bring in some sort of technical ability to, to conducting science that's always best complemented by those clinicians and those who are on the front lines actually serving kids. So. That's sort of how Brian and I complement each other. Excellent. Thank you. Welcome. Brian, how about yourself? Certainly. Uh, as you mentioned, Brian Borman, I'm the executive director of PCYA, and I have been working in child welfare for about 30 years. I actually started as a caseworker many years ago in Tucson, Arizona and eventually obtained my master's degree in counseling, became a child therapist for a number of years, and then went to law school um, to represent county child welfare agencies here in Pennsylvania. So I've got to see kind of both ends of the spectrum from both practice as a caseworker and to representing agencies. And now I do a lot more policy work in the area of child welfare. And that's how I connected with Jenny. Great. That's excellent. We've got two sides of the coin here. Welcome to the show, Brian. To start us off, I was thinking, Jenny, could you describe some of the kind of core activities of the NICHD Center for Healthy Children, as well as the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network? Yeah, it's sort of an interesting story. And it starts with Jerry Sandusky, actually. So Sandusky happened in 2011, uh, when the whole issues were disclosed and, and dealt with at Penn State. And that really sent a ripple effect across all of academia um, in, in that, you know, how could this happen? How could this happen at Penn State? How could this happen anywhere so egregiously? And one of the things that Penn State did, which they didn't have to do, uh, was launch what they called their academic response to bring in a cluster hire is what they call it, a faculty who um, had expertise in the field of child maltreatment research to apply sort of an academic lens across five different colleges in a transdisciplinary effort to solve the issues of child maltreatment. And so I was um, recruited to, to come and lead that effort. And uh, about five years later, um, the NIH, which is our chief scientific funding source in the country, started to turn their attentions to the issue of child abuse and child maltreatment. And they launched the first ever and largest commitment of research funding in the form of wanting to fund one 
capstone center, as they called it, across the country that would be a national resource and represent the scientific expertise applied to this the problem of child maltreatment. And it was a competitive bid. We were successful in getting this grant and getting this capstone center designation as a national resource. And I think one of the reasons why we were competitive is because when I was conceptualizing the center, um, I thought that it wouldn't be complete without the voices and the service to child welfare issues, leaders, and workers in the state of Pennsylvania where we were housed and represent. So I, um, I talked to people like Brian about what could we do in service to put part of our resources aside to do what we call demonstration projects that would be at the behest of child welfare administrators in the state. And in doing so, we thought that this community-engaged research would be more impactful in terms of impacting the front lines, impacting frontline caseworker jobs, the way that they have resources to do their jobs, but also the policies that might impact how various funding streams get funneled to actual caseworkers and administrators. Um, So a big part of our center, of course, is science. Uh, We have a large cohort study that we're doing, studying the health and well-being of kids that are in the system, but also then these demonstration projects that are in partnership and at the behest of child welfare administrators. So those are the big tenants. And then the final product of all of those is then basically policy change. So how do we then take that research, apply the best methods possible to that research have that research cover the most impactful areas, and then translate that research into messages that resonate with those who hold the purse strings and those who are the policymakers at both the local, state, and ultimately federal levels. So that's sort of the center in a nutshell and the impetus behind uh, partnering so closely with, with people like Brian in the state of Pennsylvania. There's so much going on. I'd love to hear from the, the other side of the, the dyad here. Ryan, could you give our listeners kind of a primer on the activities of, of PCYA and, and your role there? Sure, happy to. Uh, so Pennsylvania Children Youth Administrators Association has actually been in existence for over 50 years. Back in the 60s and 70s when they started passing the big statewide and national legislation on child protection laws was really when a a group of administrators started meeting for the first time and and ultimately incorporated into the Pennsylvania Children Youth Administrators Association. Uh, The thing to understand about Pennsylvania is we're a a county-based child welfare system, one of the, the very few. There's about eight eight states across the country that are county-based systems. Most of them are state-run systems, which means that for Pennsylvania, the counties each have their own child welfare agency, which is ultimately overseen by uh, the Office of Children, Youth, and Families through the Department of Human Services at the state level, which acts as the interface between the counties who are providing the services and the administration for children and families at the federal level, which oversees much of the funding streams that come into the various states and the the child welfare systems. That being the case, we're kind of one of the outliers, um, along with the other county-based systems, 
But as a result of that, there was really recognized the need for coordination between the counties to share best practices, uh, provide support for each other, and, and to be able to lobby for changes that need to be made in the child welfare system, since it's, there's not that single point of, of decision-making on how practice and policy will interact at the state level. So that was really the impetus for the uh, Pennsylvania Children and Youth Administrators Association to be incorporated. We are an affiliate of the County Commissioners Association of PA. As your listeners may be aware, most of the services that they receive in terms of the trash pickup, their uh, utilities and, and their roads and all of that is really um, coordinated at a local level through the county commissioners in each county. And, and child welfare is really no different than that. So we are affiliated with uh, County Commissioner Association, CCAP. And uh, as essentially what we do at this point is we facilitate trainings for the various county child welfare agencies to keep everyone up to date on the, the latest sciences and, and we provide a, a number of conferences a year to allow them to connect with each other, really support each other and share information. We provide a training to the public as well as act as an interface with the legislature and trying to help educate them on the practice of child welfare and supporting various positions that are being discussed in the legislative process. So a really complex environment here with local and, and state level voices in the, in the same room. I would like to talk about what I see as a, a really excellent example of a strong working relationship between our academic partners and our kind of practitioner boots on the ground folks. Over the last few years, I've been tangentially involved in what has become called the, the time use study. So I'd love to discuss that a little bit because it does involve both of your organizations. Jenny, do you want to tee it up? And then Brian, please chime in wherever you see fit. So one of the things that Pennsylvania did in the wake of Sandusky was to overhaul their child abuse laws, basically, and all the statutes. It's one of the things that was sort of brought up by some task forces at the state level was how did this happen with Sandusky in such an egregious way when, you know, people thought, why didn't they know? Who, why weren't they reporting? What were the definitions of child abuse and so on? Like, how could this have happened? And one of the changes was a lot of changes to the child protective service law and statutes associated there. And a lot got passed. Things like the definition of child abuse in a lot of different areas changed. The definition of perpetrator changed. The mandated reporter laws changed. Um, lots of things changed, just one after another after another. And legislators really got on board with this. So let's pass as many as we can. You got legislators who wanted to be, you know, the child abuse legislators saying yes to all these changes very rapidly and very quickly happened. But one thing that did not happen in conjunction, there wasn't one additional dollar added to the child welfare system to actually field these changes or shore up the, the number of caseworkers 
or anything else to do with child welfare. So all these statutes changed that effectively resulted in many, many more calls coming to what we call Childline, which is the hotline for child abuse reporting. But no additional resources were given to child welfare agencies to handle these calls. Brian, do you want to say anything more about all that legislative change? Yeah, just briefly, that this is what we see pretty frequently in child welfare is that there's generally a high profile case of some sort. I think Many folks might remember the Jared Tutko case, which was a very emaciated starved child in, in Harrisburg area. There's Danielle Kelly case in Philadelphia, the Grace Packer case, and of course, Jerry Zandusky. So what, what we frequently see with some of these very horrific cases is kind of some knee-jerk reaction in terms of, of rapidly passed legislation. Coming out of the Sandusky scandal, they put together the governor's task force on child protection, had a number of hearings on that to really consider the different options. But what we saw was really about 26 laws that were passed and all went into effect around the same time in 2015 that were largely focused on the child uh, protection services law, which is the reporting and referrals and investigation law, as opposed to the Juvenile Act, which is really what the counties use to take actions. So it's more your state registry type laws. But yes, a lot of it was passed without any thought given to how is this going to impact practice. One other piece I want to put in there, because I I think it'll come up later on in this discussion, was those laws also included one that required the development of statewide case management system at the, the state level to collect those referrals. And it came with a hard and fast deadline for when it had to be implemented. And anyone who's worked with software development knows that that's kind of one of those things that you can set aspirational goals towards. We want to have it done by, but to put it in statutes that it has to be done by this date, and that's when it's going live regardless, is kind of a recipe for disaster, particularly when you're talking about a, a system as complex as Pennsylvania, where you would have a statewide data system, but then six county systems that feed up into that was kind of a recipe for disaster and caused a lot of the problems. I think that with these high profile cases and the, you know, quick passage of legislation, there are often unforeseen consequences. That's also some things to sort of pay attention to whenever there's implementation of legislation changes is what wasn't thought of and what are the unintended consequences of something, you know, everyone would agree that Pennsylvania needed to overhaul some of these statutes, some of these definitions and so forth. But one of those unintended consequences was just a lot more calls, a lot more referrals, a lot more investigations that had to happen at the county level and no more caseworkers. And, uh, so this is sort of when Brian and I started talking. Brian, I'm trying to remember when the first time I met you, when was the first time? Was it we're on these councils together at the state level? Is that when we met? Do you recall? I, I kind of think it might have been around sometime in 2016. I, I checked before this that our first data use agreements dated back to early 2017. So I'm thinking we were talking months before that. 
because they had to be developed and some battle plan put together before we started executing those. So at least we were introduced as two people who should know each other. Brian said to me, you know, Jenny, one of the things we could do, what we need to do is we need to demonstrate how caseworkers are spending their time. And we need to demonstrate it empirically and objectively because it was Brian's and his administrators that he represented. It was their opinion that there's way too large of a caseload for any one caseworker to handle realistically. And to be able to empirically demonstrate that would be helpful in uh, revising some of the caseload size statutes and suggestions that were at the state level. So he said, well, what do you, what do you think? Is that something you could do? And, and I said, well, sure, that sounds exactly like what we want to do. We want to do a project with you that has direct relevance for your administrative system and your caseworkers. So we started talking about methods for that. And one of the things that Brian told me was there was a time you study done, I don't remember, Brian, several years back, where the prevailing sort of methods were either you have caseworkers at the end of the day sit down and write down, okay, what did I do today? What did I spend my time doing today? Right. So did I spend my time on paperwork or contact with families or traveling back and forth or preparing for court or going to court or all of these things? And or you have people follow caseworkers around and they're marking, you know, what caseworkers are doing every day. So there's sort of this objective. We're following you around and we're looking at, at things. And so a caseworker study had been done. Do you remember what year that was? Brian? Over several years, PCYA had conducted time studies of various counties. And we all together, we had about 50,000 hours plus of of actual uh, time use data. But as Jenny mentioned, the issue was really that it was self-reporting. And when we look at this, it's really about the real world applications. So the extent to which you have time as a caseworker to handle cases then drives what the state regulations say are the requirements for how many cases you can carry. And that's not been changed in a very long time. So presently, the state regulations are are set at 30 cases per each caseworker, despite the fact that since those regulations were set, numerous laws have passed and the workload has dramatically expanded so that realistically at this point, our our position has been that about 10 to one is really where we should be at. And that was, that was really borne out by many of our time studies. However, anytime you try to advocate positions based on that, you run into that brick wall of, but these are all self-report, so obviously you're going to skew the numbers. There's really the impetus for why I wanted to reach out to Jenny and say, okay, I'm tired of running into this brick wall. What can you do to help? And can we get something neutral and supportable? So then the story continues where Brian came to me and said, what innovations are there out there in, in your scientific world? And you know, the first thing that popped into my head was how can we utilize the case management system? So the case management system is the place where caseworkers record pretty much all of their activities with a certain family. So every time a family is visited, we know about it. Every time there's a court case, 
uh, we know about it. Every time there's paperwork that has to be done, we, we see that the paperwork is logged, right, in the county system. So I started thinking, and I would ask Brian, are there timestamps on all these? Like, do you know when it started and when it stopped? And he's like, yeah, I mean, if it's done right, we know when they start this paperwork and they, they enter it in and we know when it stops and we know what the date is of a certain visit. So I said, let's do that. Let's not just do self-report and let's not do a few counties, but let's look at the case management system as as many counties as we could get to partner with. And so we started doing that. And that work was done with Sarah Font, who's another one of our faculty, and he and Kim, who's a, a research associate here. Sarah's a former caseworker. Hyun is a computer programmer. And so we started digging in to the case management system. So we got a lot of objective things, like we knew the address of the family. And then Hyun and Sarah added all their GIS coding. So they knew how many miles that was. And they knew what time of day it was. So they could program in traffic. They could program in returns. They could program in all these kinds of things that were just much more objective in terms of what kinds of time it took to work a case. And then we sort of bumped into barriers. Like how do we know when a caseworker is writing their narrative? So after they visit a family, then they, they sit down, and they write something. And we don't know how long that would take. And some caseworkers longer than others, whatever. So Sarah figured out how to count the number of words that were typed in and then did the average typing speed that we could apply. And so we started applying all of these different tools to understand exactly what it would take to work a case. And then as was really amazing to me, Brian suggested that we have an advisory group that we would come together with and talk about what we're getting and what we're seeing. And then that advisory group would guide us into what we're missing and what needs to go next. And I think, Brian, you should talk a little bit about that process because I felt like that process resulted in then us doing some other methods that we would not have thought of doing had we not had that back and forth. And I think throughout this process, that was kind of the, the stickiest part of all this. Because we have 67 counties, we have 67 different ways uh, of handling child welfare, 67 different courts overseeing child welfare and for those kids that are in care. And so uh, there was tremendous variation in, in some of these areas, particularly visitation and court. And so those were kind of some of the, the more challenging issues that we had to address through the, the advisory board as to how do you count that when the case notes might simply say, had court today and this is what happened. But that what it didn't take into account was, depending on the court, some courts might have what, what they call a cattle call where everybody is scheduled for court at the same time and then you sit and wait your turn. So... You may be scheduled at one o'clock and not get into court until four o'clock, or you may be in a court where everybody's scheduled on the half hour. So you're scheduled at 3.30 and you actually show up and have court at 3.30. And the same with visits. Some visits, may you may go out and spend five minutes with a family, or you may go out and spend four hours because the case requires that. Maybe you're working on cleaning up their home or something like that. Trying to capture those huge variations was one of the more challenging things that we had to, to work around. 
that's where the uh, benefits of the advisor board really came in handy because we had a diverse mix of counties, primarily the directors from those counties, so that we were able to capture a wider section of the practice than just one or two or more myself coming in saying this is what it was like in this county because we definitely know that there are a lot of variations. Through that iterative process, we also learned of what we could not get through the case management system that was important to estimating time use. Some of those things, like Brian said, were time spent in court, preparations for court, right? Liaisoning with other agencies to fill in some of the paperwork gaps for these families. So we decided that we would do sort of a hybrid model where we actually conducted a survey with caseworkers. And that survey was a self-report survey, but it had things like, on average, how much time do you spend preparing for court? How much time do you spend at court? How much time do you spend in meetings? How much time do you spend in other activities that are sort of off book, which means you're training other caseworkers or you're consulting with other caseworkers and it's not actually uh, captured in the system. This was really the largest time use study that had ever been done because we were able to analyze so many cases. And the answers to some of this were dependent on what stage the case is. So it's not as simple as to say every case is the same, right? Placement cases are different from in-home cases, right? And then stage of case is different. You spend time in your intake. You spend time in investigations. You spend time in post-placement with the families. So type of case and stage of case actually made a difference. And it was through all of this and this iterative process with Brian's advisory group that we were able to finalize and then have an executive summary that depending on the stage of case, we were able to approximate that to be you know, 11 for in-home cases, I think, and about 18 for placement cases, but pretty close to what Brian and his advisory board, their clinical intuition was. I think the other interesting part of all this was uh, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of the study was how do we better weight cases when we we look at assigning them? I think anybody who's worked in any type of, of social services understands that not all cases are created equally. So if you're talking about a case being a truancy case, that may mean mom, dad, and a teenager who won't go to school because he stays up playing Xbox all night and he's an only child. So that may be your case, which would require relatively minimal amount of work. Case may also be a mother, three separate fathers, seven kids, all with uh, a number of, of medical needs and mental health needs that all need to be addressed, that's considered a case. So as you can see very clearly that one's going to take a lot more work than others. And that was one of the things we were really trying to capture with this time use study is what are those factors that are going to make a case take many more hours as opposed to other cases. So that when we look at, okay, you, you're a, a supervisor and you have four caseworkers that you're supervising, who should get this case right now? At this stage, we know, okay, based upon the information that we have, 
that this is likely to take more hours because of these factors. So should this case be weighted more heavily than the other case to try to equal out the caseloads and make sure that no one worker is being overwhelmed. I know we got a lot of good information here. Pennsylvania is in the process of developing a statewide case management system. So I know for myself personally, I'm not done with this, this time you study by any stretch of the imagination. I think a lot of this is really good information that we need to see built into the new system to translate it from research to functionality. And those numbers turned out to be remarkably similar to what Brian and his colleagues had intuitively thought should be a reasonable caseload size. So our results showed that for in, intake, so like the first 60 days of a case, the caseload size of those types should be around 12, 12 and a half. In-home cases, exactly the same, about 12 and a half cases. And then placement cases, about 11 cases in placement cases. So it was pretty close. And then the other thing that we were able to do was to say, well, this was a big change, right, Brian? Because the statutes were 30. And we're talking about cutting that in uh, into a third here. So what does that really mean? Does that mean, policy-wise, that the child welfare caseworker population needs to be tripled? Is that what that means? Or what are the implications? Or, or what else are the caseworkers doing where we could save their time so they could work more cases? So that's the other thing that our analysis did was showed that caseworkers are spending their time doing what we call off-system or not related to case activities. And a lot of that was paperwork. So some of our analysis showed that actually this off-system documentation or this off-system paperwork in urban counties and rural counties was a little bit different. In urban counties, about 58% of the caseworkers' time was devoted to this off-system documentation. And in rural counties, that was about 34%, right? So if we're talking about saving caseworker time, if we're talking about optimizing the child welfare system in terms of what resources we have to serve families, getting rid of some of this redundant documentation and paperwork is one of those solutions. So what we did in our executive summary is we actually translated some of this off-system documentation time into case hours, right? And those are the kinds of things that we were able to say. If we saved X amount of time, then we have more case hours for caseworkers to work. And some of that was to increase the face time with families by off-system documentation going down then the FaceTime actually working those cases could go up. And so many caseworkers got into child welfare, not because they liked paperwork, but because they liked the face-to-face -face family time. So some of this had implications for caseworker burnout, caseworker turnover, and attracting talented caseworkers to child welfare. Yeah, I'd like to say it was surprising, but it, it kind of reinforce what we, we knew going into this, that uh, much of our time study data showed that caseworkers were going to spend about two to three hours of documentation for every hour actually working with the family, which is really unfortunate because when you're talking about making social change, 
it's really that face-to-face -face connection and, and that ability to work with the family to assist them and help to strengthen those families that's going to predict your outcome of success, not how well you wrote down what that hour consisted of. Unfortunately, that's just kind of the nature of the beast in this field. But I, what I did find interesting with the study as well, though, was the off-system hours that, that Jenny was talking about. The counties, like any other employee, have their annual non-discrimination policy, non-sexual harassment trainings that you would expect at your place of employment. And in addition, then child welfare has its, its training. It takes 126 hours of training to certify a caseworker. But then in addition, there's 20 hours a year of training they have to go through. Most do many more than that because of new laws and, and new practices coming out. So any one of those, when you look at them in and of themselves, is not that substantial. But when you start calculating all of them together and staff meetings that take place every month, you're cutting into a pretty sizable portion of the, the caseworker's time that is not spent actually doing casework. It was good to see the numbers to back that up and provide us a, a platform to use that for further discussions. And then some simple policy changes just presented themselves. For example, a lot of frustration around the case management system was when caseworkers have to enter in data, enter in, say, family information, addresses, names of family. Those are not auto-populated. And they don't populate from one form to the next to the next. So simple changes like auto-populating the case management system, like drop-down menus, right? Simple things that could save the caseworkers a lot of time. And then this whole idea of starting from scratch every time there's a new report for a family, if the case has been expunged because it may be a report that was not substantiated, that case can be completely expunged. And then if there's another call, which we know happens a lot, families are often re-referred and re-referred, but in the cases of expunction, that's starting completely over. Those are policy changes, simple policy changes that can save caseworker time and result ultimately in more cases to, to be worked and then more time with families. Yeah, unfortunately, some of those changes are a little more challenging than others to put into practice. I know one of the things we found that when we start looking at caseworker paperwork redundancy, you find that caseworkers have a lot of bosses, for lack of a better term. Their supervisor may want some information in a particular format that makes it easy for them to review the case in comparison to other cases. The state wants it in a certain format for that when they do licensing so that they can see that X, Y, and Z were done regarding a particular case. So they want it written in a certain way. The court wants it written in a certain way. And case notes have to be entered into the system in a certain way. So what you end up happening is the, the caseworker will have the exact same information provided four different ways for everybody who wants to see it a different way, rather than all of those ancillaries say, okay, we'll take it the same way. And, and so we'll cut that redundancy down rather than you having to recreate the wheel over and over again with the same information. That's definitely a work in progress, and the systems don't always uh, all agree on whose way should be the way it. So these are the kinds of relationships that I love to, to talk with folks about, and I get excited about. 
you certainly did not need me to facilitate any of this because clearly the engagement and trust and the effort over many years is profound. And the result is responsive, relevant, and, and really relational work product. Yes, of course, there's challenges to implementing all of the recommendations, and we live in a, a complex world. But some of these efforts at applying really innovative mixed methods via survey and administrative data, I think really are, are profound in providing defensible positions. So I think that's really remarkable and, and really um, so happy to, to hear more about it from the two of you. I do want to pull out a little bit and think about how do we better facilitate this relationship? How do we improve and clone time use study products that are relevant, responsive to the needs of, of the populations that we're serving or working with and build on, on trust? So this is very broad. If anything comes to mind, just off the top of your head, please chime in. I know this is something that Jenny and I have talked about a, a couple of times, and uh, it, it's certainly some, some direction I want to see the counties take. From my perspective, we have a ton of data collected in the area of child welfare. We collect ages, what drugs are being used, and how many referrals come in, what types of referrals they were. We have a ton of data, and much of that gets put out every year in the annual child abuse report. Fortunately, it's what I tend to call counting widgets, that we, we're really good at reporting out what happened, how many kids are in care, what types of kids are in care, how many of a particular type of abuse occurred, which is really, I mean, it's important, but it's not really helping to improve the system. So where I see the, the value of this relationship is really in how do we do a better job collecting data that's going to be meaningful in making change and improving the outcomes for kids. It's great that if you can count all this stuff and put together a nice report with bar graphs, but not a single kid's safer because of that, unless you can take that information and translate it to some practice or procedure that's going to improve those outcomes. So that's really where I want to see the system going and with the development of a new case management system for the state and counties, I think it's absolutely critical that we bring in our research partners as that system is being developed so that we can get the information built into the system that will allow us to do that. I know many people who are listening are aware of we've had a scourge of opiate overdoses, and that's been a very dramatic impact on child welfare as well as many, many other aspects of our lives. However, much of the legislation we're seeing and many of the programs we're seeing are still focused on that. And yet at the county level, what we're really seeing as a driving factor is methamphetamines. So the, the delay with practice or implementation of laws compared to what's actually happening generally tends to create a situation where we're solving yesterday's problems from the state level. And what we really need to do is have some type of data built into those systems to identify those hotspots so that before anecdotal evidence brings it to somebody's attention that, hey, have you noticed that five out of 
six of our placements now are being driven by meth, we could have that data trip a, a warning flag automatically say, hey, your placements for methamphetamines are up 80% in this particular area. Start targeting intervention practices in that area. I'm just using methamphetamines as an example, but I mean, it could be really anything, safe sleeping, not locking medications. Many of these things that are identified in the annual child abuse reports as being a driver for fatalities across the state could just as easily have be built into systems that would help warn and trigger those types of responses earlier on. So that's really where I see this relationship going, and I would love to see a better connection between academia and researchers and the practice piece of that to try to help drive outcomes more so than counting widgets. And I think a lot of that is access to, it's very rare, I think, that you find a university where there's actual resources available to work directly with county leaders. Most of the time, research gets done on the shoulders of one or two academics who are trying to make their career and have very limited resources. But the way that we've structured our network in our center is that we have actual people's butts in seats ready to analyze data, data managers, data analysts, faculty whose jobs are devoted to this work. So we've got the resources ready. It breaks my heart when those resources are ready, but there's no data because the access to data is limited through regulatory challenges that are both at the university side and at the state and county. That process is just difficult to navigate, even when you have all your ducks in a row. The state or the county may not have the resource to pull the data for you because they're so overwhelmed. We have the direct access into some of the county systems, which really makes it facile and really makes it work. We can actually do work when we have access. Those kind of relationships and that relationship and trust building, you know, between Brian and I, yeah, that's because both of us are cool people and we like each other and we trust each other and we work together. But our relationship doesn't always translate into breaking down those regulatory barriers in a state like Pennsylvania, where there are 67 counties and 67 different interpretations of the CPSL and what that access really means. It's just an ongoing bang your head against the wall challenge that either side could easily give up on at any time. We just haven't yet. And I think we haven't yet because Brian and I are on the same team. Like, we're in the same meetings. We say the same things. We have the same frustration level. We talk about the exact same solutions. We go out differently when it comes to solving those. We go about it differently, but we're on the same page and we care about the same things and that hasn't gone away. And sort of to change gears a little bit, part of the, the trust equation here is relational and part of it is about ensuring that there are security and protections in place for such sensitive data. I'm sure some of our listeners are curious as to some of what those features are. Jenny, if you want to note anything about how the protection of confidentiality and, and the privacy of these really sensitive populations 
is maintained in the research environment. I think people would be staggered to understand the level of security that we've built here at Penn State. I mean, it's Department of Defense level security. There are no networked computers, right? There's always secure file transfer. Our people have to be vetted and then vetted and then vetted and then vetted again. Our Office of General Counsel scrutinizes every word of every document. And so too does the Department of Human Services at the state level and then counties at the county level. Those protections are in place. There are protections that are compliant with all these different statutes and regulations that we take very, very, very seriously. And luckily, we've never had any breach at all. In the 25 years I've been doing this, I've never had any breaches because we take it so very seriously. People don't get access. We don't give this data out. This data is not housed in willy-nilly ways, right? So we've set the standard for Penn State. Child welfare research has set the security standards for Penn State. And I'm very proud of that, but boy, it's a lot of work and a lot of time. Jenny's point, Pennsylvania as a state is one of the more strident statutory schemes in terms of, of maintaining confidentiality. And that's been supported by federal cases as well through the Third Circuit. Before we could even start the conversation about how that data transfer would take place in the data use agreements between Penn State and the counties, we had to get around the statutory provision that says everything's confidential unless you're a researcher recognized by the Department of Human Services as doing research on their behalf for child welfare. Before we could even start the discussion, there had to be a letter granting, recognizing Penn State as an exception to the CPSL's confidentiality rule. So every one of those steps, like Jenny said, takes time for those data use agreements to be put in place. So there's a lot that goes into it. The end result is worth it. Yeah, remarkable complexity. I think that our, our listeners will certainly appreciate that. And the benefits of strong working relationships are really, really important. I, I do want to give you both an opportunity for some closing remarks as we come closer to our conclusion. I think as evidence-based policy is really our future, whether we are going to go into it kicking and screaming or not. I think administrators at all levels are understanding the benefit of using data to, to drive decisions. And when we can facilitate that, when we can apply our resources and the talented faculty that we have here to do that work, then I want to do all of it. I want to do everything that's asked of us. And I have so appreciated Brian's candor his willingness to understand and appreciate the scientific method, his openness to ideas, the open avenue of communication that we have. I feel like I can call Brian anytime, and I do, and I have. I've caught him on his deer stand during Pennsylvania's hunting holiday. I've caught him just in other meetings, and he'll take my call we can discuss, you know, things that are of importance. And to have someone like Brian, who represents all of Pennsylvania and all um, of the administrators across the entire state, 
is just a really valuable perspective to have in terms of what we can do to best serve the system through research. And I will say, I, I don't answer on my tree stand for just anyone. Jenny Rates. Yeah, I, I would say moving forward, child welfare's got a number of, of struggles that we're going to be going through for the next several years. One, we're not seeing caseworkers stay on the job as long as they have in the past. And, and the result of that being that back, I hate to use the term, back in my day, back in the day, caseworkers would have maybe been on the job 10, 15 years. And, and by working with families for so long, seeing so many different situations, you just kind of developed an innate sense of what the concerns were and and I need to check on this, I need to check on that. And you, you know where people hide their drugs and you know where to look on a child to find bruises that you suspect there may be and things like that. You don't necessarily get that just in your initial training and you don't get that for only being on the job for a couple of years. With caseworkers not lasting on the job as long as they had historically, um, I really see it as a need to use technology to backfill some of that to help provide some additional safety and, and stability for the agencies. And to do that, we really need good data going in to help us analyze those. There's a number of, of good pilots taking place using data analytics to help trigger different risk factors and, and help identify based on certain sets of circumstances that you should check this and pay particular attention to this area. So there's different ways to structure the data and the research to translate that into practice that with the end goal of keeping kids safer. And that's one of the things I think we really need to be focused on. In addition to that, we need to really use that data to make caseworkers' jobs easier in the documentation department. Because as Jenny mentioned earlier, people don't go into this field because they like data entry. They don't go in the field to write reports. They go in this field because they care about people and they, they want to improve the lives of the kids and families that we serve. The more time you take them away from doing what took them into the field, and the more time you force them into data entry, the less likely they are to stay in the field. And, and what we see is, is a number of them will get some time in the field, and then they'll go to another type of social work where they do get to work with families. If we really want to keep people in the field, we need to make it palatable for them, and we need to make it so that they can actually do the job and not simply feel overwhelmed and like they're letting people down because they can't possibly do all the work in the amount of time allocated to them. I think there's, I see a lot of possibilities and a lot of hope in the future here. A lot of opportunities in front of us. Thank you both so much for your time today. As you all know, we've been joined today by Dr. Jenny Knoll and Brian Bornman. Jenny serves as professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies and the director of the Child Maltreatment Solutions Network at Penn State, and is also the PI of the P50 Capstone Center for Healthy Children from NICHD. And Brian serves as the executive director of the Pennsylvania Children and Youth Administrators Association. Thank you both so much for your time today, and thank you so much for your service to such an important field.
Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.